This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of September 26th, 2022, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. To the extent Butler University has become a known quantity at the national level, we can thank its basketball program. Since 2006, the Bulldogs have earned seeds in the NCAA men's basketball tournament 10 times, including reaching the national championship final twice. That 16-year period also coincides with the tenure of Barry Collier as Butler's athletic director. He didn't need any introduction to the Bulldog Nation when he was hired for that job since he had coached the basketball team from 1989 to 2000, earning three NCAA tournament appearances. And during that stretch, he was Horizon League Coach of the Year four times. Over the past 16 years, Collier also has presided over an aggressive push into higher levels of competition, jumping from the Horizon League to the Atlantic 10 in 2012, and then to the Big East in 2013. Since then, Butler has invested tens of millions of dollars in renovating or building athletic facilities for a broad range of sports, with a cost largely picked up by donors. In fact, Collier has enjoyed particular success since 2006, increasing the number of donors and the amounts they give to Butler Athletics. Butler isn't just a one-trick pony, of course, when it comes to sports. For example, its cross-country and soccer programs are considered among the best in the nation. But it's basketball that pays the bills, and there's much anticipation for this year's season with the hiring of another familiar face. Thad Mata, who got his start as a head basketball coach at Butler in year 2000, has returned, bringing with him an extraordinary 74% winning percentage over 17 years. Butler announced that it was parting ways with coach Laval Jordan on April the 1st, and then introduced Mata as its head coach on April the 3rd. Collier did not far to go in his search for a new coach, since Mata has lived across the street from him since Model left Ohio State University in 2017. Given that Collier is now 68 years old, I wanted to find out whether he has any plans to retire in the next few years. His answer was pretty quick. No. That led us to talk about his long-term goals, his successes in fundraising and improving Butler athletic facilities, and Butler's transition to the Big East. We looked at the past, including what he learned from Butler coaching legend Tony Hinkle, and to the future and his expectations for Butler basketball this year. Here's our conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Barry Collier, Butler University Vice President and Director of Athletics. Thank you for making time today. Uh, Glad to be with you, Mason. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity. So you became Butler's athletic director in August 2006. So you just celebrated your 16th anniversary in the position. I don't know if you celebrated it. Do you get like a card or a nice email from President Danko after 16 years or does he take you out to lunch? Well, it's it has been 16 years. And, you know, I, I feel like I'm uh, I'm certainly blessed to be have been here as long as I am. I'm happy every day to that we add on to it. Uh, I can't get enough of it. Uh, and I work with really good people and four really good people. So uh, it's it's my pleasure. So in April of 2019, you signed a five-year contract extension, which I assume gets you to the end of 2023-24 uh, school year. 
Um, I hate to break it to you. You are 68 years old, uh, though you look pretty good. Do you plan to retire at the end of the 23-24? No, not really. Actually, the, the the contract runs through the end of uh, the calendar year of 24. So that's kind of in the middle of a school year and doesn't you know, really mean a whole lot, except that'd be the 31st day of December of that year. To me, that's what that means. But um, uh, the, the length of the if I keep doing a good job and my my boss wants me to keep working, uh, I enjoy what I do. I don't have an exit date in my head. I don't feel 68. I don't act 68. Uh, and so, or, or behave like I'm 68, I suppose. I don't think a whole lot about that. I just think about what our goals are ahead and trying to get those done. Actually, the folks in, in podcast land don't know this, but I can see what I guess is a little bit of your office there. You've got a big American flag uh, and a bookcase right behind you. Do you have a whiteboard? Do you have a like long-term goals spelled out somewhere? And uh, if so, what are they? What do you want to get accomplished in the next few years? Well, a number of things, and some are some are consistent with almost annual goals or what you have to be doing all the time in the, as an athletic director and and for a university. And uh, yes, I have a whiteboard space. The flag you see behind me is actually a gift from uh, Senator uh, Dick Luger. Uh, in 2010, when he flew this flag over the U.S. Capitol uh, and then did the same thing with two others and sent them to Brad Stevens and President Bobby Fong and I at the time for, for Butler's appearance in the Final Four, that or final game that year in Indianapolis, for that matter. So I'm, I'm, proud, of, I'm proud to be an American, but I'm also proud to, to know all the details on that particular flag, right? But in terms of the the goals that that I have or we have really, we want to on a regular basis achieve academic high marks in with our student athletes and contribute to their education both inside the classroom where they where we support them to do the job that the professors work on, but also outside the classroom in two areas, two big areas I guess, being on a team, part of a team, a successful team member, and secondly, competing learning how to compete, compete in a, in a public um, venue, right? In, in a pu- public atmosphere where people keep score and they know whether you won or lost on kind of an, a little bit of related to that. I think the most important job that an athletic director has is attracting and retaining the very best people that he can or she can. And uh, to do that, you need to support people at a, at a high level to let those that are looking to come join you know that they have a, a a good opportunity to succeed. And also those that are here that keep working against the challenges know that they're supported and have that same opportunity to succeed and so forth. So how do you do that? Well, you, you try to generate as much of the resources that are needed to be successful. And the things that are needed to be successful, in my opinion, in athletics are a culture, a philosophy, a a way of doing things that that uh, is genuine and ha- is value based, and beyond that, specifically to objective resources, would be staffing both levels and compensation. You know, competitively, competitive uh, staffing, competitive facilities, competitive financial aid, and competitive operating dollars. And if you have those things. You ought to be competitive. Uh, that's that's our thinking anyway. Uh, I remember reading in preparation for this interview that I think of the most recent academic year, the cumulative grade point average 
for Butler athletes was I'm going to, I'm trying to think, was it 3.4? 3.4. Yeah. Yeah. And is, has that been improving? Is that pretty much static? Yeah, that's up uh, a 10th of a point. It was 3.3, not too long ago. Our goal of our past goal of 3.0 is too low. You know, we've raised our goal because our kids have performed. And, you know, one of the things that's that's true here, and I think a lot of places probably, is that our students want to be successful academically. They want to be do well in their classes. Um, and and they have a big challenge, frankly. They're in they're invested in that, in being successful academically, but they're also uh trying to to meet the demands and the desire to be a an excellent athlete on a team, a successful team. So it's not a small thing that 3.4 is our overall GPA uh, for our entire 550 student athletes that we have at Butler. What can the athletic department do to support students academically? Well, I, I would say that philosophically, you need to have everybody on the same page, which allow, which would be to encourage and allow students to be successful, i.e., there are, you know, there are rules in place with the NCAA about missing classes and, and you can only travel so much and so forth and so on uh, when you leave campus to go for a, a game or something like that. But more than that, it would be our, our staff, our coaching staff, particularly the individual coaches of those student athletes, to emphasize academic success and to use athletic opportunity as a carrot and sometimes a stick to motivate our student athletes. Most of them don't need, they have self-motivation. That's not, you know, the carrot is, is really the opportunity to be successful academically and, and invest in yourself for the next four to six years, depending on the major um, for the rest of your, for the benefit of you and your family, the rest of your life. So yeah, that's probably the biggest thing, but we work hard to um, schedule uh, so we can, keep kids on campus in class as much as possible. Everything from let's let's come back after the game and not spend the night because we got class the next day where it might be, hey, I'm tired. I don't want to either bus back from Chicago or or fly back and get home at three in the morning. We, we do that so we can get them in class. And by God, they better be in class that morning if we're going to pay for a plane to fly them home at 3 a.m. I have a nephew who is a Division One Big Ten athlete as a freshman, I was amazed at the kind of support that his school, or at least uh, his program gives him, even to the point where they actually help him fill out his schedule and help him monitor his assignments. Uh, is that something that the yeah. does for your athletes as well? Academic support has changed over the years in, in, uh, for athletic departments. And th what we've found and gone to is a more productive assignment-based academic monitoring, study hall, so forth and so on. Effectively, we don't want you there, you know, drawing doodles on your pay paper while you're in study hall. We need you to show us what you've done in, in an assignment area in, you know, with regards to assignments that you have for your class. So we have that. We have study hall. We have we have mo academic monitoring. Uh, we provide tutor. We'll pay for tutors. We'll mostly we try to encourage our student athletes to take the reins and the responsibility for their success themselves. And uh, most don't need much uh, guidance. They come here well-prepared and they've got 
had support all the way along and they've become in more or less independent. Having said that, most of them, a freshman like your relative, you want to make sure that they're in, they haven't walked off the end of the plank, you know, that they they really do get it because it is harder. It should be harder, right? It's higher education, higher, i.e. tougher. You mentioned uh, the need to be competitive in terms of athletic facilities. We can go back um, over in the last decade, all the facilities at Butler that have received major upgrades. There was $36 million renovation of ankle, uh, but there are also been upgrades to you name it, the varsity field, uh, the outdoor track field, Bulldog Park, Butler Bowl, Butler softball field, Butler tennis courts, and the Butler indoor hitting facility. I'm sure I'm already missing something. Uh, now that takes money. And I assume it is your job to dig up that money. How do you do that? Well, those are, um, you know, when you think about it in total, that's a lot of spaces that have been improved over time uh, and or built. But having a, a, a team of uh, fundraisers and more importantly, having a team of or having a, a volume of donors who are willing to support what you're doing is critical. And we would have more and even, you know, larger and better and bigger and all this kind of stuff if we have more people. That, so we're always looking for that. And we have grown that quite a bit. But most of those dollars have come through simply through donations. And we've, you know, arrived at that, those places uh, with those facilities. We've got more on the list to improve and to erect, and we'll get to them just as quick as we can. I mentioned a lot of, a lot of facilities there, obviously. Is it possible to say, I mean, what the, what the facility budget has been over the last 10 years in, in terms of either building or improving? Uh, that's something I don't really have a uh, the, on my fingertips, you know, the big ones you mentioned, the 36 and the another 10 and a half million for air conditioning and and renovation of the Ephraimson gym within Hinkle Field House. But I would probably say it's approaching 70 or 75 million, something in that neighborhood. The interesting thing is Hinkle Field House was built in 1920, opened in 1928 at a ridiculous price of $900,000 and would be, you know, say 1 million. Well, it, it would take upwards of 150 million to replace it now, but it was already in place 15 years, 16 years ago when I came. So, and 30 years ago when I was coaching here. So, you know, that investment, and by the way, that was done by largely by 41 individuals and business, business benefactors, as we called them, in the mid 1920s to build this giant facility that was one of the biggest in the country. It was the biggest in, on any campus in the country at that time. And uh, that was privately funded. That wasn't out of university funds. So it's still being done the same way. It's just a different, different animal. The costs are a fair amount more expensive. So I see on, uh, on the website, uh, on your page that, uh, about the Bulldog Club, which is the booster organization for uh, athletics, uh, that it has tripled in size in terms of donor members since you started as athletic director in 2006. And their contributions have increased more than sixfold. I don't know if that's an up-to-date figure, but that's what it says. This, I'm assuming, was a priority for you as athletic director, that you saw that as a as, as a need and some untapped potential. Yeah, very much so. The there was a there was a fair amount of low hanging fruit, and some of that was just 
you know, the investment and the the drive to and the permission uh, to to do those things. So, you know, a university has a choice. You can you can either say no, you're not going to let we're not going to let you do anything, or when we're, we're not going to do anything to allow you to to grow and improve your your state your situation, or they can say here's the money, right? That ain't, that's not happening either. Or, or that's not happening. Or they can say, yeah, yes, you can, you can get after it. You can, if you can figure out a way to raise that money, you can uh, invest it back in the program. And that's essentially what Butler did at the time. And so we did not have a single full-time fundraiser in athletics at the time, nor under the university's development office was anybody assigned to athletics. So you talk about a low-hanging fruit hell this was fruit that had fallen on the ground you just got to pick it up if you can get some people to go do that so we reassigned some people and put more emphasis on that and we have a you know we still have a relatively small development team in athletics uh and we also have the university advancement team helping us uh from you know in different ways and it's actually an area of investment we want to go further on uh, it's, we see an opportunity there for, for even more. And, and by the way, it's up to 20 times that original number now. So it really has grown substantially. Part of that's when you, you know, when you raise 50 million for Hinkle over the, you know, the course of five years or so, that'll run that number up pretty good. <laughs> so 20 times the, the amount from 2006. Yes. Wow. That's incredible. What percentage of the athletic department's total revenue is from the basketball program? Uh, 90 plus. Holy Mac. So that essentially funds the rest of the sports. Correct. And th- and when we talk about revenue, are we including the donations in there or is that other sources of revenue? It includes the, includes donations, but it, and it, there are a couple of different things in the donation areas, right? You've got dollars that are donated that you're spending the same year you get them. Those would basic, basically be annual dollars that you're raising. And then you have capital dollars for projects mostly mostly facilities and and those dollars you save you raise for multiple years and then you spend it on a facility right and then there's scholarship dollars that are largely endowed dollars where you're you're putting those dollars away and they they kick back about 4 or 5% a year on the on the corpus tour that you can use to um, offset the scholarship cost so yeah depending on what you're talking about here you know those that's where those dollars come from and they all line up about the same in terms of the impact of of basketball so yeah we just you know we leverage what we have and what you know and where the interest lies i've said before if it lie if it if it was to lay in tiddlywinks we'd be leveraging that as best we could so it's just you know we're in a state where basketball is important and it it is a sport that's relatively speaking, more affordable for smaller schools. And we're a smaller school. We like to say we punch above our weight, but we don't want to use that as an excuse that we can never do more than we're doing either. Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm. With more than 625 attorneys across 11 offices, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. 
All right. We're back with this week's edition of the IBJ podcast and my conversation with Butler University Athletic Director, Barry Collier. Uh, let me go back in time. You played for Butler. Is it your junior and senior season? That's right. Basketball, 1974 and 76. Now, the coach at the time was George, and I'm going to screw up his last name. Is it Theo Fanis? Yeah, good job. Oh, Theo Fanis. So, Tony Hinkle, by that time, had already finished his five-decade run as head coach. I think mm-hmm. that was in 1970. Was he athletic director when you were a player? No, he had uh, fully retired in 1970. And uh, our athletic director, when I first came here, was Tom Warner, who um, unfortunately um, had had a heart attack and passed away. And Bill Sylvester became the uh, athletic director after after Tom Warner. So Mr. Hinkle used to. You can cut this one because you probably get bored on this story. But Mr. When I was in school, Mr. Hinkle was basically holding court downstairs in the in front of the equipment cage with his cronies and this was 1974 and five and they'd be down there smoking camels i suppose it was whatever cigarettes and there'd be a blue haze hanging around the cage where you had to go get your clean socks and shirt and shorts and unmentionables uh, for practice every day and they would uh, insult us each day as we approached the um, cage to get our clean stuff. And what do you do? You didn't get, you didn't work hard enough yesterday to even need clean clothes, you know? And uh, so it was hilarious. And then Mr. Hinkle would, when practice started, they would come upstairs and watch. He would come upstairs and watch practice virtually every day because he was retired at Butler at that time, but they had given him an office in Hinkle and he wasn't in his office a whole lot. He was watching games and he would come to all the games uh, when there was a happening and watch practice every day. So I have fond memories of, of, of him, but I never did get to play for him or work under him. I did when I was coaching here back when we were talking about that, I did have him talk to our team while he was still alive. He was in his nineties at that point, but um, he lived to be 92. I think it was 93, 93 years old. He died in 92. You know, what a, what a, what a career he had. I know you uh, you sought him out in your first couple of years as a yeah. coach and and asked for, uh, I guess, any kind of advice he could give. Was there anything that sticks out, anything that really proved to be effective or something you never thought of before? I think the best thing I had him, I asked him to do was come talk to our team because he wasn't going to be around forever. And they, you know, they weren't even, some of them weren't alive when he last coached. Uh, so, you know, I think that piece of it was really good, but, you know, he, he always found, I think this is one of the keys about him and he never said, don't ever leave or anything like that. But, you know, he stayed at Hinkle, uh, stayed at Butler for five decades. And the, the short period of time he left was during world war II to go up to the great lakes Naval station in Chicago and serve for uh, about a year and change. I think it was, and then come right back to Butler and jump right back into coaching and just kind of continue on. But I would say that he, the best thing was that he would say, you know, make the most of what you have. And it doesn't do a whole lot of good to bellyache about what you don't have. Right. Unless you can go out and try to get more, but I never thought that he, that he necessarily believed that the grass was greener on the other side. And, and, 
you know, a, a lifelong lesson for all of us, much less young people or coaches that tend to, you know, bounce around a fair amount of time. So it's one of the reasons I, you know, I came back as athletic director because I got to come back to Butler. You know, it's, I love this place. As a player, what is the game that stands out for you? Well, I couldn't tell you the the numbers that we had, but early on uh, or in my career at Butler, we were we were mediocre. We were kind of a mediocre team in terms of wins and losses during that time because we had losing seasons both my two years here. I did get to play quite a bit, but initially when I first came to, it was a great lesson for me, I think, as I look back on it. I came to Butler as a transfer after two years of junior college at Miami-Dade Community College down in Miami, Florida. And I had some size and they recruited me. I think they recruit everybody that they think you can play someday and help, you know, the team be successful. And the very first um, competition that we had was the blue white scrimmage. You know what this is like, right? You've got a basketball team and you're going to split it, split it in half and have a scrimmage against yourself. And, you know, not like a regular game, but a, but a bigger deal than any practice that you would have. And I do remember, not making the starting five on either one of those two blue or white teams. Right. And so I'm scratching my head and I'm thinking, man, I'm, I must not be as good as I think I am, or I'm not doing something that I should be doing. But before the, the very first game we played against Cleveland state in 1974 around Thanksgiving time, I came off the bench and, and scored 19 and had six rebounds and, then I started the rest of my career, but that's a good lesson really, you know, and it has a good outcome too, I suppose, but because I got to play, but the lesson of, you don't have all the answers and you're not as good as you can be. If you're not showing how good you think you are, you need to do that. And I wish that we were more successful. I love the fact that people, I tell people now that I'm a Butler basketball alumni, because they think we were good back then. They don't know, right. It's too far <laughs> back in time to um, know that we we weren't any good but I had a great experience and I'm appreciative of of Butler making that possible for me uh, so let me go back to the near history uh, Butler joined the Big East Conference in July 2013 so that's about nine years ago what would you say has been the greatest benefit of joining the Big East the the overall elevation of our an awareness of our basketball program, and the university, right? I mean, obviously, when there's as much exposure, when every single one of your games is on television, na available nationally on television, like Fox has made available all of our games and everybody else's in the uh, men's basketball team in the league, that's an unbelievable amount of exposure. And, and that's exposure for the university. So you're looking through this window of athletics and there's more to it than just the basketball team and whether they make a layup or not. And there's the university behind that, you know, in those, in those numbers of years, our enrollment has jumped. Um, but our enrollment jumped because of the success of the basketball team before that. Also uh, we're able to get into parts of the country that we weren't as a university before. You know, I, I think that the big East has always been a really good league, but when it changed nine years ago and became the new Big East and the, the football playing schools moved off to other conferences. Uh, there was maybe some question about whether we'd be able to hold our own 
and really there are in basketball there are there's a power six and and the big east basketball is one of those power six and we're not sixth either i mean we're we finished we finished third fourth fifth and we've never finished number one uh, we might have even finished second one year in terms of how depends on how you look at that but this is high level basketball and that's a new level that we've ever butler's ever been on is there a way to quantify how much more revenue it means to be in the big east than where you were before yeah but we don't really get into those details so i'll, I'll pass on that uh, there's obviously a lot of excitement around the program this year with the return of thad mata as a head coach this season so he first returned to the state of indiana to be associate athletic director for basketball at iu starting with that 2021-22 season I'm, I'm guessing he moved over from ohio at the time and, and he ended up living across the street from you how did that happen well when he left ohio state five years ago i guess maybe a little bit more than that now but five years ago they moved from columbus to indianapolis and bought the house across the street um, so he's been my neighbor for five plus years. Okay. Um, and his he and his oldest daughter enrolled at Butler as a, a freshman five years ago. She's now a Butler grad, and their next older daughter enrolled at Butler two years later, and she's about to be a junior, I think it is. I you know kids grow up so fast, I can't even keep track of it. But anyway. He's been my neighbor a, a lot, while longer than just last year. But again, how does how does that happen? Do you guys have some kind of pact? I have had Brad Stevens uh, ask me to save a house when he's done. That's where he's moving back to our street. So um, <laughs> uh, who knows if that'll happen? But I, they and they love Boston, so I don't think there's anything going to happen anytime soon. But uh, I was actually in Spain when Thad texted me with a picture of the house and said, "Hey, Barbara said you might know." about this house she thinks it might be in your neighborhood or something and you know it's the one directly across the street and i said everything is good about that house except the guy across the street um who you know you don't know what he'll be wearing when he goes to get the paper in the morning now i take the paper online so that's not an issue yeah, so. there you go. do you guys see each other every day now even on the weekends uh almost every day but okay. but you know there's I mean, my job is, I don't want to do his job. He doesn't want to do my job. And we're busy doing our jobs. And so there's travel involved with all that we have going. The four of us were together last night, and as it as it turned out. So, yeah, often. often. Our wives see more of each other of, of each other than Thad and I do. I will say that. When did you start talking with him about potentially rejoining the program as head coach? On April uh, 1st. Why does that? stick out on your brain besides it being April Fool's Day. He agreed to become our coach then in 20, like 24 hours. Okay. You didn't have to ask him twice. And we announced it shortly thereafter. And he, had he indicated to you earlier that, boy, he really was interested in getting back into coaching? Well, he'd interviewed a number of other jobs over those previous five years and turned down one after another after another. But I think he also had, he continued to consider getting back into coaching. Uh, he'll tell you he enjoyed retirement. So, you know, we would talk about some of those other opportunities, but, you know, we had, we had Laval Jordan was our coach and, and um, he would come watch practice, but, uh, we, you know, we fully intended for Laval to continue. And, you know, we made a change last spring. It was not a small thing at all, but uh, we did a full long review and, and made that change. Uh, and then you, you know, you, you can think a lot of things, but I don't think it's right to do, to be 
like recruiting somebody on the side. I just don't believe in that. So we didn't, I didn't do that. Thad Mata has a stellar winning percentage as a head coach in 17 years at Butler, Xavier, and Ohio State. It's something like 74%, which is Hall of Fame caliber. Yep. Can you isolate what does Thad Mata do so much better than all the other talented, knowledgeable coaches out there in Division One? You know, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I suppose if I knew that, I'd be – looking for the same thing all the, all the time when in no matter the sport. Right. But he just has a really good grasp about what's most important. And number one being the, the people around you, his staff and his student athletes, the guys on the team, which at one point were recruits and then be, you know, became members of his team. And, but he's also able to uh, play the game, teach the game, and play the game successfully because it's not enough to just recruit successfully, which he does recruit successfully, but you need more than that, right? You need the, the development uh, and, and all of the development, the mentorship and the, and the focus, the development of student athletes, all of them holistically, but also making them, helping them become better uh, athletes and basketball players. The other thing I think is so important is that he, he, he's made the right decisions about how to play the game. So that's kind of the X and O strategy. And then within the games, he's um, made more of the right decisions. Never perfect. Um, you don't want, you know, he hadn't won them all. So it is like kind of ridiculous how successful he is, <laughs> but good for him. You know, he made the most of his time, each of the places he's been. And in total, it is hall of fame. They are hall of fame numbers. And so I, I would expect him to get there someday, but we want him to add on to that. You know, the average, you say 74% and that's accurate. The average is 26 and six, I think. And I told him we'd take his average uh, this year. <laughs> yeah. That was one of my questions is what, what are your expectations for this first season? Well, I have, you know, I'm the athletic director that says we're going to win them all until uh, right. Which the coach and everybody else, uh, rolls our eyes too because I, I don't I don't think that there's a whole lot to be you know gained by, by predicting. I feel good about the direction we're going. I feel good about the year. I feel good about the timing was such that it was coincidental that we had this foreign trip uh, planned this summer that included uh, practices during this summertime that you can't normally do, but you can because you're going on a on a foreign trip and then play games. So I, I think that we, you know, we have the ability to be successful this year. I think there's probably a range of possibilities. Is it possible we won't have a, a winning season? Yeah, it's possible. Is it possible we could be in the hunt for an NCAA tournament bid? Yeah, that's possible. And it'll, a lot of things go into play and it won't be because I want it to, but um I think that that's that's kind of the range I would I would say and and that's very positive. But this is a different team and than any he's ever had, uh, just by nature of you know, different. Um, every season it's different. Much less uh, he coached none of these guys last year, right? So different for them, different for him and and us. Well, best of luck to you. Maybe we'll check back here in a year and see how things go. Yeah, all sounds good right now, Mason. I, I appreciate it and uh, 
happy to happy to talk about Butler just about any time. All right. Well, thanks again for taking so much time. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. My thanks again to Barry Collier. And folks, before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few stories in the latest edition of IBJ I want to draw to your attention. First up, Peter Blanchard examines the conservative backlash in Indiana over what is known as ESG investing and whether state government and its pension funds should entertain factors such as environmental and social concerns when investing. Taylor Wooten asks what's next for the Indy Rents program which during the pandemic spent nearly $34 million in federal funds to help local residents cover lease payments. And Dave Lindquist explores the plans of media firm Urban One now that it owns eight radio stations in the Indianapolis market. Again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at IBJ.com. I will say it is easier to access all of the latest local news about business and politics and all of IBJ's data on central Indiana's business community and economy if you're a subscriber. And here's a new development. We have wrapped all of IBJ's content together with all of the stories, columns, and podcasts from our sister publication, Inside Indiana Business. And now works out to about $3 per week for actionable information about every notable business development across the state. You won't find Indiana's story told with this kind of breadth and depth anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com and click on that subscribe button. And thank you for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week. 